the kinds of people that are more influenced by get out the vote messages are usually more similar to the kinds of people who vote anyway. So in some sense, the get out the vote strategies that are most effective in turning people out to vote are actually making the electorate look even less like the rest of the population. So in some sense, we're actually increasing inequality in political representation. Welcome to the second episode of Radio Harris, our new podcast featuring thought-provoking conversations with Chicago Harris faculty. As we prepare to go into the midterm elections, many of us are eagerly speculating on the outcomes. Which issues will the voters care about? Will the Republicans reclaim the Senate? But there's a more fundamental question that's often overlooked. Who will or will not turn out to vote? Here to answer that question is Anthony Fowler. He's an assistant professor at Chicago Harris, and his research has tackled complex questions about political representation in democracies. Professor Fowler, welcome. Thank you very much. Professor Fowler has worked to figure out whether or not the people who are making it to the polls truly speak for the rest of the country. In his work, he's discovered some shocking distortions that are drastically shaping who wins and loses elections. If more voices were being heard, our government could look a lot different. That, of course, is Turn Out For What from the viral video featuring the rapper Lil Jon and a slew of other celebrities talking about why they're heading to the polls this election day. That video, which has almost a million views on YouTube, was produced by Rock the Vote. They're a nonprofit that's been around since the 70s that tries to get young people to the polls. And they're the kind of thing that a lot of people think of when we hear get out the vote. But that term can actually mean a lot of different things. So to begin with, can you tell us who are the main players in Get Out the Vote and how do they work? What are they trying to do? Sure. So so Get Out the Vote, I suppose, is a, is a blanket term for personal forms of contact intended to turn people out to vote. The academic study of Get Out the Vote actually goes back to a University of Chicago political scientist named Harold Gosnell back in the 1920s and 30s. And there's a long history, obviously, of political parties, candidates, machines, trying to turn people out to vote, either in the form of uh, personal contact, you know, door-to-door canvassing, calling them up on the phone, sending them pieces of mail, etc. Um, the academic study of Get Out the Vote was revived in the late 90s by two Yale political scientists, Alan Gerber and Don Green. And since then, there's actually been a, quite a bit of a revolution where uh, political candidates and political campaigns have started spending a lot more resources on Get Out the Vote efforts. As, as you know, television advertising and, and air campaigns dominated presidential and other elections for a long period of time. And there's been a recent, recent surge especially with Obama's campaign in 2008, to take a lot of these scientific findings, these methods that we have for turning people out to vote, and incorporating them into their campaigns. So we've seen a huge surge in the number of personal contacts, um, knocking on doors, calling voters, sending them fairly personal pieces of mail to try to encourage them to turn out to vote. Mm -hmm. So they're increasingly targeted Yes, yes, that's right. And one of the main findings in this academic literature is that the more personal the contact, usually the more effective. So knocking on someone's door and speaking to them face-to-face is much more effective than just sending them a a piece of mail. Talking to them on the phone is often a little bit better. And the more you can make it a personal kind of experience, um, you know, perhaps including, including a personal component, including a social pressure component, the more effective these strategies usually are. Mm-hmm. So the campaigns have a good reason to try to get this down to a science, right? When we think of uh, the Obama campaign famously leveraged data to learn as much as possible about the people they were trying to reach and what methods worked best, but do we have any idea how effective these actually are as techniques? 
Certainly, we've learned a lot about how to turn people out to vote, and that seems to have manifested itself in, in actual elections. So we've done, you know, academics have done more hundreds of, of get-out-to-vote experiments where we'll randomly assign some form of contact to some people, leave out a control group that gets no contact, and we can estimate how effective those strategies are. And campaigns appear to have learned what kinds of things are most effective, and they've incorporated them into campaigns. So uh, Ryan Enos, he's a uh, assistant professor at Harvard, he and I have conducted research on the actual effects of all this get-out-of-the-vote work in the context of real campaigns. And so, for example, we found that in the 2012 presidential election, turnout was about seven or eight percentage points higher in the most contacted states, in the heavy battleground states, as a result of the get-out-the-vote efforts of the campaigns. So there's some sense in which the campaigns really have adopted the lessons of academic studies of get-out-the-vote. They've incorporated into them into the campaigns, and that appears to have had a pretty significant effect in the aggregate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so more people are going to the polls. Mm-hmm. Who are those people? And are they the individuals that, are they who we think they would be, right. I guess? No, that's that's a great question. Um, we know, before even talking about get out the vote, we know some general patterns about who turns out to vote and what kinds of people do turn out to vote. And as you might expect, uh, they tend to be fairly unrepresentative of the rest of the population. So older people, white people, church-going citizens are all much more likely to vote than their, than their counterparts, for example. And that, that raises a lot of concerns, for example, that maybe the set of people voting might have very different preferences than the, than the population as a whole. Maybe that actually has some sort of important effects on election results and, and resulting public policies. So one of the one of the motivating goals of people who studied get out of the vote was whether or not we could potentially create a more representative electorate. Could we somehow turn people out to vote and in the process get a set of voters who look a lot more like the general population. And so the thought was there are these underrepresented groups that tend not to vote, be it you know ethnic minorities, poor people, young people, low socioeconomic status. And the thought was maybe by by you know by having concerted get out the vote efforts, we could bring these people to the polls and we could create a more representative electorate. And surprisingly, the academic studies on get out the vote, the academic experiments have actually been much more effective in mobilizing more of the same kinds of people that already were likely to turn out to vote anyway. So in a study that I've done with Ryan Enos and Lynn Vavrick, Lynn, Lynn is a political scientist at UCLA, the three of us went back and we looked at all the evidence we could from previous get-out-the-vote experiments, and we just asked what kinds of people are mobilized to the polls. And we were surprised by this striking fact that on average, the kinds of people that are more influenced by get-out-the-vote messages are usually the kinds of people who are already uh, more similar to the kinds of people who vote anyway. So in some sense, the get-out-the-vote strategies that are most effective in turning people out to vote are actually making the electorate look even less like the rest of the population. So in some sense, we're actually increasing inequality in political representation as a result of this get-out-the-vote strategies. And that we think that's fairly troubling for, for a couple reasons. But one, one of the really troubling implications is that we still haven't figured out how we can best reach these underrepresented populations. If one of our goals is to try to Create, create a more representative electorate, we're not doing very well on that front. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, there's the civic sense that this is a bad thing because it's not representing the country as it really is. It's excluding a lot of people. But for the stakeholders who might be coordinating these things, is this hurting them or affecting them at all? I guess, is there any reason for them to care who is going to the polls as long as you know, bodies are getting to the polls? Right. I mean, obviously, you know, for, for reasons that, that you already know the answer to, campaigns don't care about this nearly as much as, say, a policy practitioner would want or an academic who cares about political representation. If you're a campaign, you just want more of your supporters to turn out. And so the real challenge is 
finding out who are going to be your supporters, and then figuring out how to mobilize as many of them as you can. And so there's some sense in which campaigns don't care that much about this, and they just want to mobilize more people, uh, and they want to pursue whatever strategies are more effective for them. But there's another sense in which if your goal is to run an efficient campaign, you, you, might, you might be particularly interested in these results because they suggest that there's a whole segment of your potential supporters that you're failing to reach. That you, sure. you are deploying get-out-the-vote strategies that are primarily only effective among a certain subset of individuals, and we don't, we don't really know how to reach those other populations, but maybe there's a whole set of new strategies you could try to reach those populations. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in that study that you suspect that a lot of those low propensity voters, you call them, the people who are less likely to get to be mobilized by a get-out-the-vote effort, feel disenfranchised or sort of not part of the political process or maybe have a distrust in the political process. Do you have any inkling of what might be done to make these people feel more involved and therefore get to mm-hmm. the polls? You know, I don't think we know the answer to that. I think that's I think that's a really crucial component of this. Um, and if we can somehow figure figure out the answer to that, we might be able to design get out to vote strategies that will do a much better job of reaching those populations. Uh, a lot of us, you know, academics or people people who are well educated, care a lot about politics, think a lot about politics. We think, what's wrong with these people? Why aren't they participating? in politics. Why aren't they voting? Voting is so important. And I think that's the wrong, I think that's the wrong way to think about it. Um, you know, if you, if you put yourself in these people, in their position, um, they have no rational incentive to turn out to vote. Their vote's not going to be pivotal. And they have so many other more important things that, that dominate their lives. And so I think by sort of looking down on them and thinking, you know, why don't they, why don't they respond to our messages? Why don't they care about their civic duty? I think that's the wrong way to think about this. Um, and I don't know the answer to that, but maybe we want to spend a lot more time in those communities and figure out what's important to them and figure out if there are interventions that could mobilize them to vote. All right, so the upshot here is that Encouraging people to vote doesn't quite work in the way we expect. So how about making them vote? Uh, You've done some work looking at electoral politics in Australia, where every citizen is required to vote. So before we even get into what you found, give us some background on that. For us Americans, how does compulsory voting work, and what did you want to learn about it? Sure, obviously. So as you you alluded to, there are systems where we essentially... Uh, the government provides strong incentives for people to turn out to vote, and Australia is probably the advanced democracy that achieves the greatest level of that. So Australia, as you say, has a system of what they call compulsory voting. It's really just financially incentivized voting, so it doesn't have to sound as dramatic as that. Um, but what it means is that if you fail to turn out to vote in an election, you'll you'll usually get a piece of mail that asks you to pay a fine, and that fine is usually relatively small, but only order of twenty to fifty dollars, depending on the election in Australia today, and or um, instead of paying the fine, you can often just provide an excuse. You can, you can t- explain why you didn't vote. If, if you were sick, if you were traveling, et cetera, those are usually valid excuses. Um, and that, that incentive, either having to pay a fine or having to provide an excuse, is enough of an incentive to get at least 90 to 95% of Australian citizens turning out to vote in uh, every major election. And so that's, that's, the basics, that's the basics of how it works. And if, if you're the kind of person that is particularly worried about how representative the voting population is relative to the eligible voting population, then this might be a, a particularly great policy recommendation. You can incentivize people to vote. You can get virtually everyone to participate. And the, you know, the typical voter is going to be very similar in terms of their preferences to the typical citizen. Mm-hmm. So one reason that I um, that I studied this, so I, I I was particularly interested in this question in voluntary democracies about whether or not 
election results and public policies really represent the preferences of the citizens, or are they biased in favor of the subset of people who turn out to vote? Mm -hmm. And so I thought the adoption of compulsory voting in Australia was a nice opportunity to answer this question because Australia essentially implemented the experiment that I would like to run. They forced everybody to vote, and we can see whether or not that had any interesting policy or electoral consequences. Right. And how did it come about in Australia? How and when? Um, Australia has six states, and so one really nice thing from a research perspective is that for state assembly elections, the six states all adopted compulsory voting at different times. That was really nice for me as a researcher because it gave me the opportunity to compare states that were changing their laws to other states that weren't changing their laws. So in some sense, I had treatment groups and I had control groups. So I could do what we call a differences and differences design to estimate the effect of that policy. So Australia Australia adopted compulsory voting for federal elections in 1924, but it adopted compulsory voting at the state level um, anywhere between 1914 and 1941, depending on the state. Um, and there were, there were lots of reasons given at the time for why they, for why they were interested in this kind of policy. Um, one, one reason was legitimacy. There was a thought that um, political outcomes would be more legitimate if they accurately reflected the preferences of the citizenry. So very, very similar to, the, to our original motivation for wanting to study this. Um, there were other practical reasons as well. Um, it turns out that, that both political sides in Australia actually made a miscalculation. Um, they both thought they were going to benefit from compulsory voting. The Labor Party, on the one hand, thought um, you know, our opponents are wealthier. They have, they have, they're more likely to have cars. They're maybe, maybe it's easier for them to vote. And so we're, gonna, we're sort of hurt. We're sort of suffering from, from a turnout disadvantage. On the other hand, the uh, coalition parties on the other side saw that the Labor Party had actually a much more extensive get-out-the-vote network. At the time, the labor unions were actually going around and mobilizing their supporters. And so, strangely, both sides thought they were going to benefit from compulsory voting. Obviously, that can't be the case, and obviously that's a miscalculation for at least one of the parties. But that was, that was interesting, one of, one, of the, one of the reasons that such, such a policy could get implemented. That also, that also suggests that, in general, it might be very hard to implement policies like this because it might require something like a miscalculation. Right, for everyone <laughs> to agree. Yes. Yeah. So it's not unreasonable to think, at least from an untrained perspective, that the people who do vote are essentially the same type of people as those who don't vote. Sure, um, sure. That it's just a, you know, a random subset of the same population of the same country. So that would mean the outcomes would be the same. And that's what you wanted to find out, whether or not that was true. And So what did you find? Sure, that's right. So... Um so in some sense, that was actually the thought for a long time, was that even though turnout might be relatively low in a given election, maybe the set of voters is still representative of the rest of the population, and so maybe there aren't any major electoral consequences of that. And so, like you said, one of the best opportunities I thought to answer this question was by looking at a case like, like Australia, where they switch from voluntary to compulsory voting, to see if political outcomes actually change. So in Australia, I found that with, that along with the adoption of compulsory voting, the Labor Party picked up a lot of seats and a lot of votes in state assembly elections. Uh, they did about 7 to 10 percentage points better than they did under the voluntary voting system, uh, which suggests to me that at the time, election results and policy didn't actually closely match the preferences of the citizens. And as compulsory voting brought a bunch of new working class citizens to the polls, policy outcomes and electoral outcomes changed quite a bit. We also see evidence at the national level that compulsory voting coincided with fairly large increases in pension spending, which was one of the which was one of the major policy preferences of the working class and the Labor Party. So there's evidence from Australia that this kind of thing can really matter and can have large consequences. In the United States, 
obviously we we don't have the opportunity to see something like that dramatic experiment where we where we mobilize almost everybody through financial incentives but we do have other opportunities in the US to at least test whether or not marginal changes in the voting population can have important political consequences and so just to give you one example um, the timing of elections is fairly important in the United States in terms of how many people turn out to vote so in a midterm year for example we'll have you know, significantly fewer people participating than in a presidential year. And so one particular empirical example that I've looked at in my own research is comparing states that happen to have their gubernatorial elections that coincide with presidential years and comparing those to states that happen to have their gubernatorial elections in other years, in odd years or midterm years. Mm -hmm. And as you might expect, you'll see turnout somewhere between 15 and 18 percentage points higher when the gubernatorial election happens to coincide with a presidential year. And that actually has partisan consequences. So those those 18% of voters who are who are marginal and are sensitive to the timing of elections are significantly more democratic than the regular voters who would turn out to vote regardless of the timing of the election. So that actually has important consequences. So though in those nine states whose elections happen to coincide with presidential years, you see controlling for other factors, you see Democratic candidates uh, perform quite a bit better. Mm -hmm. And so the understanding is that these are lower income people and that's what's affecting the that's that's the best evidence that we have right. um we know you know we know that there are a few things that are strongly correlated with turning out to vote um income is a, is a strong predictor education race age etc you know and we we actually we found that in australia and we also find that in the united states and so of course as as more people are brought into the polls you can actually significantly alter the demographic composition of the electorate in important ways and i think those two those two examples from both compulsory voting in australia and gubernatorial election time in the united states both suggest that that these can actually have fairly important electoral consequences mm-hmm. um if we had instituted something like compulsory voting around the same time as Australia, what do you imagine Washington would look like today? How would our political system be different? That's a great question, and obviously, we, we you know we're we're extrapolating, and we're only guessing when we answer this question. Right. Um, there are a lot of things about Australia pre-compulsory voting that look like the United States today. Um, the inequalities in participation, for example, are very similar to what we see now in the United States. So I think there's some sense in which um, we can, you know, there's some sense in which we can at least guess that based on the evidence we see from Australia that we might see similar effects in the United States. We might see, for example, the Democratic Party doing a little bit better in some electoral settings. We might see different policy outcomes. I think, but I think one of the most important things is, is more of an equilibrium effect. One of the most important things is that when everybody's voting, uh, all demographic groups, all ranges of socioeconomic status are represented in the political process. And so elected officials have an incentive to cater to their preferences and to try to you know, adjust their platforms potentially in ways that are amenable to them. And so I think the most important effects aren't actually things that we could observe in terms of, you know, how many seats were won by the parties, but but actually they would actually be sort of bigger equilibrium effects in terms of how elected officials behave, what kinds of policy positions they offer to voters. So I suspect there would actually be quite large effects, but it would be it would be very hard to disentangle how much of that we can attribute to uh, the electorate versus other factors. Mm-hmm. So you're guessing that we would have centered somewhere else, somewhere further left on the ideological scale. That's that's probably that's my best guess based on the evidence that we have from Australia. But we mm-hmm. don't have very much uh, evidence. You know, I think the the limited evidence that we have in the United States is that changes in the composition of the electorate can matter. And and so I think if we extrapolate a little bit, we can we can imagine these things having fairly important consequences. Mm-hmm.
We happen to be at the rare moment when political scientists are actually at the center of the news and not just the research. I'm referring to the big uproar about a uh, political science study by professors from Stanford and Dartmouth. Uh, the researchers sent mailers to Montana voters that used the Montana state steel without permission. But the bigger controversy is that those mailers rated judicial candidates in Montana on an ideological scale, even though this was supposed to be a nonpartisan election. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, it's sparked all kinds of controversy, and I wanted to ask you about it. Because the things that you've uncovered about voter participation could suggest some real policy changes that could better represent the population. Presumably, this Montana study could also, you know, further our understanding of how elections work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what I'm wondering is, how do you think about responsibly studying elections? Where do we draw the line between understanding outcomes and affecting outcomes? And I guess, where do you draw the line in your own work? Sure. No, these, these are these are great questions. Most most of the work that I do is uh, uses observational data, where I you know I don't actually directly intervene in elections. I wait for them to happen, and then and then I look for opportunities to answer interesting questions about voters or about political representation um, afterward by looking at the observational election results. Of course, a lot of times the best way to answer a question is to actually directly intervene, to conduct some kind of experiment, to manipulate the particular. Um, particular treatment that you're interested in studying. And so of course, I think anytime we do intervene in the world as, as researchers, I think we need to think carefully about the ethics of that. Um, and I think we need to appropriately weigh the ethical costs with the potential benefits, the intellectual benefits. So for example, all of the lessons that we've learned about Get Out the Vote could not have been learned through any other approach other than direct experimentation. And like I said before, political scientists have done hundreds of get-out-the-vote experiments, and we've, we've learned a lot with, of both scientific value, intellectual value, and direct value for campaigns that probably outweighs whatever costs there are of, in terms of political scientists actually intervening in the world. Um, but I think that's, that's the kind of question that we have to raise and we have to think about all the time. You know, every time, anytime you intervene in the world, even if it's, even if it's seemingly um, innocuous, even if you're just, just providing information, or even if you're just, you know, if all you're doing is increasing participation, of course that can have important consequences. So the results that I described to you before from my paper with Ryan Enos and Lynn Vavrick suggest that in fact, the get out the vote experiments being done by academics are actually changing the, the demographic and, uh, and attitudinal composition of the electorate. So clearly those experiments are actually changing changing the composition of the electorate. Some of them might actually be changing political outcomes. I think we have to accept that, just like we of course accept the fact that uh, medical trials are a necessary but important part of, of developing drugs and evaluating them and deciding what should be what should be brought to market. So, so, I, so I'm not opposed to experimentation in general, but I think we should think about the ethics. Yeah, and you bring up another really interesting point, that there are all these little things that affect elections in a huge way, and they're not necessarily the things that we expect. It's not, you know, the, the narratives that the media is telling. What are some of the factors that matter in elections a lot more than the average voter probably realizes? Let's see. So just to give one example of this, um, the Democrats are going to lose several seats in the Senate this year, maybe maybe five or six or something like that. And of course, people, pundits and observers are going to attribute this to some kind of failing of the Democratic Party or some failing of these candidates. But in fact, the explanation is almost entirely regression to the mean. If you think about it, these, you know, the, the senators that are up for re-election this year were originally elected in 2008, which was a very favorable year for Democrats. And of course, as expected, we would expect 
some of that favor, some of the random benefit that got in 2008 to go away in 2014. And so you'd expect some of them to lose just by, just by that alone. And not because of any failings of the Democratic Party, not because voters are particularly upset with the Senate, uh, just because of the mechanical nature of randomness and the role it plays in elections. So you stated unequivocally at the outset of that that the Democrats are going to lose a bunch of Senate seats. Uh, the media that I've seen, at least, is really painting that as a question mark. <laughs> uh, what makes you so sure of how it'll turn out? So one one fairly surprising thing in the study of elections is that most elections are relatively predictable without knowing even anything about the candidates, the campaigns, what issue positions they took, etc. Um, so very fundamental factors like who's the incumbent, um, how's the economy doing, and things thinking about regression to the mean, thinking about how many seats are up for grabs and was it a good election last year, et cetera. So knowing just a few fundamental things, you can usually uh, predict within just a few percentage points, for example, the results of a congressional election, the results of a presidential election. And so that suggests that, suggests that actually a lot of the things that we're supposed to overinterpret in the media or as citizens, like various various flubs, various uh, seemingly successful or unsuccessful ad campaigns, probably actually have a much smaller effect than we realize. And also, you know, various things like campaign spending also probably have a much smaller effect than we realize. Um, we know that campaigning on the margins matters. We partly know that from get out the vote efforts, where where on the margins you can mobilize more supporters if you spend more money and if you have more volunteers. But I think on, these things are are actually relatively small effects on the margins, and most likely um, we shouldn't overinterpret the results of any one election and over over attribute the blame to any one candidate or party. Right, right. You mentioned the incumbency is one of the things that has a lot stronger pull than people realize. Sure. Yeah, there's a there's a, a long history among academic political scientists that that studies incumbent success and, and wonders why incumbents appear to, to be so successful in elections. So in the U.S. House, for example, when an incumbent seeks re-election, they win re-election about 90 percent of the time. Hmm. And a lot of people interpret that, a lot of pundits, a lot of scholars interpret that as a negative sign for democracy, that um, Maybe we have a bunch of mediocre incumbents who somehow exploit the political system. They take advantage of their power as incumbents to keep themselves reelected. One, one question that I've been working on for the last year as I've been at the Harris School is, is in, in how we should actually interpret this incumbent success. A perfectly good alternative explanation is that incumbent success is a sign that elections are working well. Imagine if elections are, are doing a great job in selecting the best leaders. We would expect those leaders to then go on to win re-election when they're, when, they, when they're up for re-election. And just by noting the electoral dominance of incumbents, we can't say whether or not we should attribute it to mediocre incumbents who exploit the system or high-quality candidates who tend to win elections. And so in one research project, I try to disentangle these to some extent by estimating how much can we attribute incumbent success to various factors. How much can we attribute it to the fact that, on average, incumbents are more likely to match the partisanship of their constituents? On average, how much can we attribute it to the fact that incumbents are higher quality than other candidates from the same party running in the same place? And how much of it can we attribute to other institutional factors? So whatever benefits I get just because I'm an incumbent. And it turns out that only about 25%, only about a quarter of incumbent success can be attributed to that last category, which means that three quarters of incumbent success is actually coming from the fact that on average, incumbents are more likely to match the partisanship of their constituency, or incumbents are higher quality than the typical candidates from their party. Which suggests to me that elections are actually doing a pretty good job of selecting for the kinds of candidates that are at least attractive to voters. 
And I think we should I think we shouldn't we shouldn't be so fast to worry about the overwhelming success of incumbents and and criticize incumbents for somehow exploiting the system and keeping themselves in power. Professor Fowler, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It was nice talking to you. You as well. This episode of Radio Harris was produced by me, Jake Smith. You heard music from A Smile for Timbuktu, Christian Bjorkland, and Lil John. For more podcast offerings, check us out on SoundCloud. And if you enjoyed learning about the science of elections, please share this episode with a friend who you think would also like it. Until next time, this is Radio Harris. <laughs>